Kia ora, I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. Today on The Detail, it's a hundred days since our parliament unanimously passed the groundbreaking Russia Sanctions Act, joining other Western nations in punishing Putin for his attack on Ukraine. Russians are hurting. Here's one example. Russian TV reports that due to sanctions, Russian car makers can't import key components. So the new larders being made without any airbags or an anti-lock braking system. And it's expected to get worse. Moscow is warning that inflation could hit 23% this year and the economy is expected to sink into recession as well. Russians won't relish the prospects of economic pain. But so far, the Kremlin shows no sign of changing course. But the war drags on. Lysyshansk is burning. Relentless Russian bombardment turning it into a wasteland. And we were going through a Bucha accompanied by the Ukrainian National Police, and they then actually took us to a church. And it was on the compound of that church. We walked around to the back, and that's where we saw this mass grave. Women and girls raped, civilians locked up, shots, reports of chemical weapons being deployed in the east of the country. So are sanctions really working? And how long will they last? Well, be warned, they won't be over in a year. Far from it. Today, I'm back with sanctions specialist Sarah Salmond, partner at law firm Minter Allison, Rudd Watts, to get the nitty-gritty on the cost and complexities of pulling out of Russia and why it's dragging on for some Kiwi firms. New Zealand's got some specific sanctions in place and they come in via a Russia Sanctions Act, which is going to stay on the books forever unless it's repealed. Then we've got some regulations under that which talk about the specific prohibitions and restrictions that New Zealand's put in place targeting Russia, and those will last for three years. Um, but they can also be extended. And then we've, we've put some additional tariffs on Russian imports, and they're going to last until the end of November. And again, they can be extended. So... But then you have to look at the big picture, how long this is going to last and will New Zealand extend our sanctions? And I think that really comes down to how will the situation in Ukraine play out? How is Russia going to act? And what are our key allies going to do? Because in many ways we are following the lead of a Western coalition. The comments out of our key coalition partners, the US, the EU, the UK, are talking about sanctions being in place for for quite a long time. So we've seen the EU say they'll be in place for many years. We've seen the UK say they may be in place for up to 10 years. And I suspect what we may see is in any negotiation to ceasefire negotiation, potentially sanctions will be one of the bargaining chips that Western powers are going to play. Uh, But even when the fighting stops, I suspect the sanctions in some form will stay for a while um, as a punishment and a deterrent for continued um, activity in Ukraine. But even when eventually those sanctions are lifted, I don't think the West's relationship with Russia is going to go back to what it was because we've had now more than a 1,000 US and multinational companies pull out of Russia and they're not just going to suddenly jump back in as soon as those sanctions are lifted. This is going to take a generation to work its way through. So more than a 1,000 US companies. Do we know how many New Zealand companies have pulled out? Actually, one of the um, US universities has got a database and they are listing every company as they become aware of it. So you can actually search on any given day 
which companies have pulled out. I don't actually know whether they have listed New Zealand companies specifically, but a number of New Zealand corporates have made an announcement that they were pulling out. So particularly the investment funds, the super fund, the banks, etc., made public announcements. Um, Fonterra has made a public announcement that they're pulling out of the market. Um, some others remain, but most really have pulled out of the market. So some have remained despite the sanctions? Yeah, I think it's a complex situation. Some companies remain in Russia because it's actually very difficult to exit. The Russians have put a number of controls in place which make it very difficult for you to withdraw money, um, people. If you leave assets on the ground there, they may take them, they may nationalise them. Um, so withdrawing for the market for some has been very difficult. But in addition, some corporates are providing the necessities of life, whether that's you know, medicines or foods, etc. They are legally ar- allowed to remain. They may feel they have a moral obligation to remain. Um, so I think it's important not to try and judge all New Zealand corporates by any given standard. You know, there's a lot of complexity and specific reasons why people stay. How do we know that these sanctions are working? I mean, the war is still going on. There's terrible damage being done. And then the latest thing is that Russia is the cause of a global food crisis. You know, this is one of the breadbasket of the world. You know, the grain from here will go all over the world. And if the farmers can't plant it, then the rest of the world will suffer. There is already talk of a global food crisis caused by this ill-fated invasion. Farming has always been a precarious business. Now it is a life-threatening one as well. So are the sanctions working? Look, that's a good question, and I think people, you know, you look at the headlines and you say, well, the fighting is still going, and in fact, if anything, it's it's at its peak now and, and, and appears to be getting worse. And you've seen, while the ruble took a real hit shortly after the invasion, it's rallied back up to where it was valued over the course of two months. But I think it's important to investigate that a bit further, because the only, well, the main reason the ruble has rebounded is because of quite draconian and unprecedented capital controls. So if you are a Russian and want to take money out of Russia, which a lot of people currently want to do, then that's not possible and there are restrictions on how much you can move out. Which really artificially inflate the value of the ruble and mask a lot of underlying issues in the Russian economy. So we're now seeing a double-digit decline in GDP expected for Russia this year. We're seeing inflation rising to the point it might hit 20% by the end of the year, a real shortage of critical technology in Russia, so particularly there's a shortage of semiconductors, which are needed really as a component for a lot of high-tech equipment, which is needed uh, on the front line. Um, so, So the Russian economy really is struggling. One of the reasons, really, they've been able to to limp on as they have is because they have been getting quite a lot of funding um, from, from oil, gas, coal exports, and it's been very difficult for the EU to agree to have a, a prohibition on imports of those products. But they have managed to agree a partial um, oil import ban, which is being implemented at the moment. But this is not the original oil ban proposed by the European Commission. It's been watered down. It now covers just Russian oil that is shipped into the EU, not oil that is pumped in by pipeline. And that's really important. Once that's fully implemented, you can expect Russian revenues for energy to go down sort of between a third to a half. And that's really going to starve the military of funds they need to keep going in Ukraine. In terms of a New Zealand company, 
I, I guess I was quite surprised that so many New Zealand companies are caught up in the sanctions. We, we just assume that it's a few food exporters. So what sort of impact are sanctions having back here on these companies? I think one of the misnomers is that um, trade sanctions are all about imports and exports. I mean, that's a key part of an economy, but that's certainly not the only part. And so, yes, there are a number of food exporters, medical exporters, um, other high-tech machinery exporters to Russia who are caught up in this. Uh, but there's also importers. Traditionally, we've imported fuels and other products. But But beyond that, we've also got investors. If you've got a managed fund, quite often you'll have international equities exposure and you'll have exposure to all sorts of global markets, including the Russian market. You've got the banks, all of whom deal with with, um, payments involving Russia on a routine basis. There's 15,000 Russian nationals in New Zealand, so they often have an ongoing relationship with the mother country. So I think the, the implications of this are spread across the whole economy. It's really not just about imports and exports. Is there still work going on for a lot of these individuals and companies to, um, you know, sever their relationship with Russia? I mean, is it not just a matter of, right, we're, you know, we're pulling out our investments, we're shutting it down today, that's it? If only it would be that easy. I think there's a couple of factors at play here. So the rules are constantly changing. As you said, we got the new um, Russia sanctions regime implemented three months ago, but since then the Act has been amended six times. The regulations that introduce the specific prohibitions and restrictions targeting Russia, they've been amended six times. Other countries have amended their laws multiple times, and in some instances their laws apply to New Zealand businesses here. So there's a constantly moving set of rules that corporates need to comply with, so they constantly need to tinker what they're doing to make sure they're complying. In addition, you can't necessarily just pull yourself out of the Russian market. So if for a number of um, exporters, they can just divert a consignment to send it somewhere else. But a lot of businesses have a distribution network in Russia. They may have an investment. They may have a physical presence in Russia. And it's not possible to wind that down instantly. Are you able to be a little bit more specific about, say, for example, a superannuation fund, a KiwiSaver fund, So, yeah, not wanting to talk about any specific companies, but there is, for example, if you have um, a fund which has investments in Russia, so securities, um, for example, uh, you may have very much wanted to exit the market as soon as Russia invaded, but it has become quite difficult to do that, both because Russia imposed capital controls which stopped you getting your money out, but then as lots of governments around the world imposed controls of their own, it became quite difficult to find someone to sell securities to, even if you could get them out, and then to know if that sale process was going to comply with all of the laws that were relevant. And so it's been quite an ongoing process for New Zealand corporates with those investments to work out, gosh, Can we divest? If we do, how will we do that? So that's been something that's dragged on for quite a long time. It's been helped in many ways by the New Zealand government passing an exemption, which makes it very clear that from at least a New Zealand law perspective, you're allowed to divest. You're allowed to divest those Russian investments. But as I said, you've got to comply with all the other global rules that apply to your business. So that's been quite an ongoing process. 
Another thing specifically that's been quite an ongoing issue, particularly for banks, is that there's a constant stream of payments coming in from Russian banks, many of which have now become blacklisted. Um, but there's also payments that New Zealanders want to make to Russians, whether that's remittances to family members, whether it's a payment for services you've already received. And the banks have to do this ongoing due diligence to check, as of the date today, can I process these payments? And as I said, the rules are constantly changing. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of interesting because I talked to John Mangan from a, um, a Hawke's Bay-based uh, Apple exporter who um, went through the whole process of stopping a shipment to Russia, but it was too late for some. Some had already gone, and their client paid in advance. So the money came to the bank in New Zealand, and that bank stopped it and sent it back. Mm. And then they found a way of getting it out. But that was in the early days. I mean, it must be so much harder now. Yeah, these situations are very tricky. You don't just send money from a Russian bank to a New Zealand bank. It goes through lots of different hands. And everyone along that chain has to do their own due diligence. And in the case of payments from Russia, pretty much all banks will be stopping a payment having a look at it, doing some assessments and passing it through. So it's quite possible that by the time the money actually gets to New Zealand, the bank who initiated the payment in Russia is blacklisted. So the banks are in a really difficult position. They're not trying to be unkind um, and unhelpful to New Zealand customers. Does the money arrive in, in rubles? Because that's an issue too, isn't it? Yeah. So generally speaking, money doesn't come to New Zealand in rubles. That's not how we would traditionally denominate trade with Russia. Most of the payments come in US dollars or, or euros. And the real issue there with US dollars is whenever you are doing an international payment involving US dollars, you are going to involve a US person. Because even if instantaneously that money will transit the US financial system, it must go through a US bank. And as soon as you've involved a US bank, US law applies. We were talking earlier about the New Zealand sanctions regime, well, it's quite straightforward. We have an act, we have some regulations, we have some things on EFAT's website. The US law is infinitely more complicated and, and more detailed, and that is why a lot of these things take time for the banks in particular to work through because there's a lot of complexity there. Getting back to a fund divesting its investments, who wants to buy a, a share of a Russian yeah. company? Or Absolutely. I mean, I think... Uh, there's a question of who can buy and who wants to buy. But I think it's important to remember that even though we're reading about all of these different countries that are imposing sanctions on Russia, there are a lot of countries that are not. A lot of most countries are not. And so actually there is still a big market of um, individuals and countries where they are able to buy and they're quite comfortable buying something that they feel is going at quite a competitive price. So I think as much as sitting in New Zealand we might think, goodness, no one wants to buy these things, I think we would be surprised. Which is sort of a, another moral, ethical mm. question in itself, isn't it? Finding someone to buy shares in a company that you want to get rid of because you know, you're trying to punish this country for what they're doing. It is a moral quandary because what are your options? You either continue to hold something which contravenes often your internal ESG policy on what you want to be investing in. Um, but if you don't want to hold it, you want to sell it. Well, you either um, give it back to the Russians, which, which helps the Russians, or you sell it to someone else. 
um, unfortunately, it's a bit of a lose-lose. There's no great options there. But I think what's great from a New Zealand's perspective is really that businesses have decided, irrespective of whether we make an enormous loss on this investment, we our moral values and our ESG policy and our global beliefs mean that we must get rid of this. An example, I suppose, of just how much work this is causing in New Zealand, little old New Zealand that has such a, you know, really small trade with Russia, is that MFAT increased its team from one to 100. My understanding is, yeah, the team, traditionally there was a sanctions officer who was a person in the legal team. Their job was to monitor changes at the UN um, and introduce them into New Zealand law. Uh, we now have a Russia sanctions task force, which I understand does comprise more than 100 people. And they've got a huge task if you think that they've created a legislative regime, they've drafted regulations, they've set up the sanctions register, they've written guidance notes for business on how to comply. Um, they are dealing with our international partners in other countries, Australia, the US example, sharing information, and they're doing due diligence in order to determine whether certain people should be added to our our blacklist in New Zealand. So there's a lot of work going on behind the scenes, and it takes a big team to deliver that. And as you say, there are a number of individuals on the blacklist that in itself must take a lot of work to alter, I suppose, to tweak. We're not looking to target every individual or company simply for being Russian. We're looking to target people, services and entities responsible for or associated with Russia's aggression. We want to target those who are economically or strategically important to Russia, and we want to respond to those states or individuals who might help Russia in their aggression against Ukraine, like Belarus. You have got to be extremely careful doing your homework to make sure that if you're going to blacklist someone that you've got it right. Because if you've got it wrong, there is a process by which a blacklisted person can appeal that in New Zealand. So you, you write a letter, you explain why the blacklisting is not appropriate, that goes to the minister, the minister decides. If you're still not happy, you can launch judicial review. And there's every possibility that we will see... Russian sanctioned persons contesting their designations here. It's for them, it's not good for their reputation, it won't be good for any New Zealand business interests they have. And remember, these are people with deep pockets. Russian oligarchs have plenty of money to fund appeals of designations in far-flung countries. So I think, as Australia is finding, we saw um, Rusal of Russia, a Russian aluminium company, launch legal proceedings um, targeting Rio Tinto in Australia. Previously, Rio Tinto had 80% of, of control and Rusal had 20%. Now, Rio Tinto has full 100% control and ownership of the management of this refinery. So, basically, what it means is Rusal will not get its share of alumina produced by the refinery while the war is ongoing. And Rusal of Russia was appealing that. So, we're already seeing sanctions-related court proceedings taking place in other countries. And I suspect, unfortunately, we may well see that here at some stage. It's inevitable because these issues are really complicated. So unfortunately, this is the price we pay for having an autonomous sanctions regime and ultimately for playing the role that we want to play on the international stage and setting out our opposition to Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The price we pay. So is it costly as well for, for New Zealand companies, for New Zealand individuals? 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, you can first look at the cost associated with standing up a team of 100 MFAT officials. You've also got officials at um, the Financial Markets Authority looking at this, the Reserve Bank. You then have every bank that has a sanctions compliance team, which is spending a huge amount of their time doing sanctions-related work at the moment. Legal teams within many of our big um, import-export companies, insurance companies, there's a lot of money being spent on this at the moment. But in a way, you can see that as a short-term expenditure for a long-term collective gain for all of us. Because if we allow the likes of Putin to run roughshod over all of us and invade sovereign territories and there's no repercussions, God knows what the future for the world and the future for New Zealand is. So it does look like an investment, but I'd say in the grand scheme of things, it's an investment that is worth making. And if that's not enough, Kiwi companies still doing business with Russia could soon face the wrath of the US. There's been a lot of talk about secondary sanctions. I think it's important to first distinguish well, what are primary sanctions, because then it gets you to what are secondary sanctions. So we've seen over 10,000 sanctions measures imposed by Western governments in the last three months. But all of these are called primary sanctions because they apply to people who are subject to the jurisdiction of the government who introduced the sanctions. And so in that way, the reach of the sanctions is limited. It only applies really to the citizens and corporates of the countries who introduce the sanctions. President Zelensky is concerned that the sanctions aren't doing enough to stop Russia. And so one option the US government in particular is considering is introducing secondary sanctions. And what secondary sanctions are is a way of extending the reach of your sanctions. So effectively it would mean New Zealand businesses would have a choice. We would either have to comply with US sanctions on Russia or run the risk of being unable to do ongoing business in the US because if the US were to find that a New Zealand business was doing significant amounts of trade with Russia, which would be a breach of US sanctions if done by a US person, they can say, mm, we're going to impose penalties on you, which means no US corporate can touch you. Or, at worst, no US bank will allow you to deal in US dollars. And if you're a bank in New Zealand, the prospect that you might lose the ability to trade in US dollars is terrifying because most of the world's trade and financial transactions are done in US dollars, like 60%. So what ultimately it will mean from a practical perspective is if the US introduce secondary sanctions on Russia, our banks will need to comply with the US sanctions on Russia. And that will create a huge additional cost because you then have to get your head around all the complexity of the US government's Russia sanctions regime. So all of a sudden, it does mean that the US is playing this role of global regulator and we will have to come into line. And we've only seen this from, only the US has secondary sanctions and so far they only have them in relation to doing business with Iran and doing business in North Korea. But what we've seen in those two instances, they very much put New Zealand business off doing business with any country subject to secondary sanctions. What's the likelihood that it's going to happen here? We don't know. I mean, I think what we're seeing from the White House is a continued desire to turn the screw on the sanctions. I mean, the, the bulk of the sanctions we see today were introduced in the first month and a half after the invasion. So we are seeing a slowdown in the introduction of new measures. But it is one of the obvious tools in the US government's sanctions toolbox that hasn't been used yet. It would have far-reaching implications. It may have um, a great beneficial effect in terms of putting more pressure on Putin, but it will also there'll be a lot of collateral damage 
to Western interests. And I, I suspect what's happening in Washington right now is they're weighing up the pros and cons, talking to their international trading partners and trying to determine if this is something that the world wants to do right now. That's it for today. I'm Sharon Brett-Kelly. The detail is public interest journalism funded through NZ On Air and produced by Newsroom for RNZ. You can download us free to your mobile device every weekday from any podcast platform. Today's episode was engineered by Jeremy Ansell and produced by Sarah Robson and Bonnie Harrison. And thanks to Sarah Salmond. Kakite anō.